Are there good reasons to fight in church? God calls his church to peace. He calls his church to unity and to love. But does that mean that we should never fight in church? Back in May, the Miami Herald reported that a church in Georgia had a congregational meeting to discuss whether they should keep their pastor or not. And, and all of a sudden, chairs were knocked over and people started throwing punches. Uh, law enforcement had to end the meeting and send people home. NBC New York reported a story of a church in New York City where the pastor had been criminally charged with pilfering money from the church. Board members said that, that he was unwilling to resign. Um, and, and then when they wanted to question the pastor on one particular Sunday, a security team, I guess outside the church, uh, tried to stop them from entering. And so a shoving match and a shouting match ensued, and the police had to break things up. Tom Rayner said that one church changed to a stronger coffee blend, and I kid you not, members left the church. Now, I think those are probably bad reasons to fight in a church. But are there good reasons? And our text today says that, yes, there are good reasons to fight in church. Paul's purpose for writing 1 Timothy gives us a clue as to what is worth fighting for. He said, I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how we, one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. What do a pillar and buttress do? They uphold, they support. The church must uphold and support the truth of God's word. The truth of God's word. But Paul, Paul also wrote, ought to behave in the household of God, which is a matter of godly living. The truth and godliness were being undermined in the church of Ephesus. And Paul told Timothy to wage the good warfare, but not by chucking chairs. All right? Not by throwing punches to the people in the congregation. Love was the aim and love still is the aim. Churches, if you think about it, they often fight over unbiblical and non-essential things. Coffee, carpet, service times, buildings, and many more things. A church is in big trouble when non-essential things become essential things and real essential things like truth and godliness become non-essential. That's a recipe for disaster. God forbid the Jerusalem church would be more passionate and dogmatic and ready to fight over non-essential things. More so than we are ready to be passionate and dogmatic and, and, and ready to fight over essential things like truth and godliness. There is a good war to wage in church. When truth and godliness are threatened, we must wage the good warfare with a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith with love as our aim. Before we get into the nitty-gritty of the passage this morning, I want to make this foundational point. Soundness of doctrine and godliness of lifestyle are indivisible. And together promote God's glory 
and love of others in the church. Now make sure you got that. It's important for today. Soundness of doctrine and godliness of lifestyle are indivisible. You can't separate them. And together promote God's glory and love of others in the church. And what I mean is this. If, if you're going to glorify God and actually love other people, you must believe the truth and then conform your life to the truth. Sound doctrine promotes godliness, and godliness promotes sound doctrine. As doctrine deteriorates, godliness deteriorates, and vice versa. Paul understood this beautiful dance between soundness of doctrine and godliness of lifestyle within the church. He was greatly concerned that the Christians of Ephesus uh, hold fast to the faith and live out that faith for the glory of God and the love of others. There are countless examples of churches across America and even in our own community where doctrine has been compromised and ungodliness has been tolerated. And some of you have experienced uh, the pain of that, that, that tension. It has rippled out and affected some of you. Already in verses 1 through 17, we've seen the two beautiful threads of sound doctrine and godly living woven throughout Paul's thinking. Now, we have to draw upon what we've already covered uh, so far in this book. From the very start, Paul made it clear that truth is worth fighting for. And when people oppose sound doctrine, they must be stopped. Why? Love. Love. The aim of our charge is love. In addition, contending for sound doctrine and godliness promotes the stewardship from God that is by faith. We contend for the faith so we can steward the law and the gospel well. Behind every word of Paul is zeal for the truth and love for God and his people. In verses 18 through 20, Paul returned to his charge that he had given Timothy from, uh, in verse 3. And he connected Timothy's responsibility to confront these false teachers by waging with, waging the good warfare. Timothy's confrontation over sound doctrine was ultimately warfare against the schemes of Satan himself. The prominent leaders inside the Ephesian church, likely teaching elders made shipwreck of the Christian faith, were blaspheming God, and that needed to stop. It absolutely needed to stop. Friends, as we read this passage, is Paul's use of the phrase, wage the good warfare, appropriate? Is that even appropriate to use? The implications of the text is warfare inside the church. So is that appropriate? Well, here's why it's absolutely appropriate. Please listen carefully. If a church loses the doctrinal war, its godliness will greatly suffer. God will not be honored or glorified, and people will not be truly loved. And if the church loses the godliness of lifestyle war, its doctrine will greatly suffer. God will not be honored or glorified, and people will not be loved, truly loved. Now, many churches have compromised doctrine in the name of love. And they can't see that their version of love is not love at all. 
and their compromise actually dishonors God and leads people right into sin, which is not loving in any way, shape, or form. We need this foundational point, so please hold on to it as we move through some some heavy topics this morning. So I'd like us to think as we proceed here about doing three things as a church in response to this text. By God's grace and Christ's strength, we must, number one, wage the good warfare. Wage the good warfare. In verse 18, Paul returned to his earlier charge. Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Paul gave Timothy a great responsibility to contend for the gospel by confronting false doctrine and the people propagating it, which if you think about it is really intimidating. That is intimidating. Now, what would you say? Given, you don't have to say it out loud, but give an honest answer in your heart. Are church people always grateful when you confront and correct their bad theology and bad lifestyle? Are they all, do they thank you when you do that? Do they thank the leaders of the church when a confrontation takes place? I have watched, I've been a pastor for a while, and not just here, but I've watched heartbreaking situations unfold where church people do not receive rebuke and correction well at all. And it's sad. Timothy's calling from God was intimidating. But Timothy was trained in the scriptures. He had strong theology. He had a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. God's grace and mercy and strength were at work inside of Timothy. He was the right leader for the job. And he was ready to wage the good warfare. In verse 18, Paul mentioned prophecies about Timothy. And though we don't know exactly what the prophecies were, uh, some things do add a little bit of clarity, perhaps. 1 Timothy 4.14 adds a bit more. Paul told Timothy, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. And then in 2 Timothy 1.6, Paul added, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. The prophecies about Timothy uh, seem to have been made at his ordination uh, when he was set apart for the gospel ministry, probably similar to Acts 13, 1 through 4, where Barnabas and Saul were set apart by the Holy Spirit uh, in order to do gospel ministry. The point is, God had a sovereign plan for Timothy. A sovereign plan for Timothy and Paul's charge to Timothy worked in accordance, it was aligned with those divine prophecies. God decreed Timothy to wage the good warfare in Ephesus. Now, why did Paul mention the prophecies? Why bring that up at this time? Look at the end of verse 18. That by them you may wage the good warfare. Somehow, these prophecies helped Timothy in the warfare to remember these prophecies. Consider these several points about verse 18. Number one, gospel ministry is warfare. 
It's warfare. There are two sides, good versus evil, God versus Satan. It's warfare. Some people, they are united to Christ, the commander, fighting for truth and godliness, and others are united with Satan, fighting against Christ, the commander, truth and godliness. Satan is warring to destroy the church and slander the name of God. And his tactics, very important to understand this, infiltrate the church. Churches like Ephesus. Timothy's ministry in Ephesus was a war against Satan and against any inside the church who opposed the gospel. Number two, every Christian is enlisted, is an enlisted soldier aiming to please Christ, their commander. Every Christian is, is an enlisted soldier aiming to please Christ, their commander. Paul told Timothy, these are subpoints, by the way, under uh, number one in your notes. Uh, Paul told Timothy in his second letter, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Timothy was, and every Christian is, a soldier of Christ enlisted by Christ to wage the good warfare. It's a tough battle. And the aim of every soldier is not the things of this world but to please the king of the ages, the immortal, invisible, only God. ISIS. When ISIS surges and our valiant U.S. warriors are in the firefight, they cannot afford to check their email on their cell phones. They, they, they can't look for a picture, to, a selfie to put on Facebook so that they might get a call from Good Morning America and, and beyond. They can't do that. Their fingers are on the triggers, unleashing a firestorm of lead on the enemy. As enlisted soldiers, they are firing to please their commanding officers. Number three, subpoint: the warfare is good. The warfare is good. Christians often fight evil wars. Churches fight brutal civil wars inside the church over trivial matters, some matters which even blaspheme God. But there is a good warfare to wage. The, the context suggests that good warfare is war against Satan's tactics to destroy sound doctrine and godliness inside the church. The false teachers were a significant threat. So Timothy waged a loving war. That's important, a loving war against their strange doctrine so that sound doctrine conquered and godliness thrived. Timothy waged war against the unlawful use of the law so that a lawful use of the law would conquer and godliness would thrive. Timothy waged war against distortions of the gospel so that a right understanding of the gospel conquered and godliness thrived. Do you understand? Later in 1 Timothy 6.12, Paul said, Fight the good fight of the faith. The Holman Christian translates it, fight the good fight for the faith. To wage the good warfare is to resist the enemy while contending for the uncompromised Christian faith. Not a building, not preferences, not traditions, not innovations. Wage the good warfare for right doctrine. For right thinking, biblical doctrine. We must wage war for the inerrancy of Scripture. 
We must wage war for the Trinity. We must wage war for the sovereignty of God. We must wage war for the penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ and justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. That sinners are saved only by repenting of their sins, turning from their sins, and trusting in Christ alone. Trusting in His life, trusting in His death, trusting in his burial, trusting in his resurrection. We must wage war for the imputation of Christ's righteousness to all believers and for biblical marriage and sexuality and for sanctification by grace through faith and our effort. We must wage war for a right understanding and observance of the sacraments. We must wage the good warfare for essential things with pure hearts, good consciences, and sincere faith, aiming at love. Love. Number four, subpoint. The prophecies heartened Timothy to wage the warfare. When the bullets are whizzing, a soldier's allegiance to the mission is tested. Timothy needed to remember that it was God's will, it was God's calling, it was God's appointment for him to fight this war. Now, we don't have the same prophetic enlistment that Timothy did. There were some unique circumstances there. But we must never forget that God has also called us into this good warfare. And God's enlistment should hearten us in the battle. It should strengthen us to remember, oh, look what Christ did for me. Look what God did for me through Christ. And, and yes, I am called to this. And yes, I can stand by the power of the Holy Spirit. I must fight the good War. Now, how was Timothy supposed to fight? I think if we miss this, we're in trouble. How was Timothy supposed to fight? Start chucking chairs around? Start pushing and punching people in the church? Timothy goes in, come on, false teachers. I got a knuckle sandwich for you. Probably, probably not a godly sanctified response of dear Timothy. But here's the next point. By God's grace and Christ's strength, we must, number two, Hold faith and a good conscience. Hold faith and a good conscience. Paul said that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. The war is fought by clinging to the faith and living a godly life so that your conscience is free and your conscience is clear. Your conscience is good. You're right with God. If you think back to verse 5, the aim of Paul and Timothy's charge was love that issues from a pure heart and what? A good conscience and a sincere faith. The fight for the faith is to fight with faith. Timothy was to hold to the sound doctrine of the faith, never compromise it, never leave it, never let it go. Timothy also needed to hold to a good conscience. God gives everyone a conscience. It's that internal mechanism that tells people what's right and wrong. It it helps them get a sense of that. And and a bad conscience can't rightly distinguish between right and wrong. It's all broken and fuzzy, and so they, they can't figure it out. But a good conscience can distinguish between right and wrong because a good conscience is submitting to Scripture and the Holy Spirit's leading. Timothy's godliness and good conscience made him ready to wage the good warfare. Otherwise, 
How on earth would Timothy be able to wage the good warfare if he was still enslaved to sin and just openly living in rebellion to God? He can't fight that way. Paul reiterated this point later in 1 Timothy 4.16, telling Timothy these, these amazing words, and they're simple, and they get at the point, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching or and on the doctrine. Okay, what did Paul mean? He meant for Timothy to make absolutely sure that his lifestyle was godly, that his lifestyle was holy, that he was above reproach, and that his doctrine was sound and centered on the gospel. Now, sometime check out, you might want to jot this down, 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 6. Sometime check that out, where Paul again connects soundness of doctrine and godliness of lifestyle. Now, look at the end of verse 19. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. What does this refer to? Well, the word this is a feminine singular relative pronoun, meaning, we define that, it modifies good conscience. It modifies good conscience. The false teachers rejected a good conscience, therefore shipwrecking the faith. Shipwrecking the faith. Earlier in verses 5 and 6, we saw that the false teachers had swerved from a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now, Paul was saying that by rejecting or by pushing away a good conscience, they shipwrecked the faith. They didn't hold to faith. Now, I like the ESV. That's what I preach from. All right, I like the ESV. It's a good translation. But I think it's misleading in verse 19. The phrase, their faith, would be better translated, the faith. They made shipwreck of the faith. Their faith seems as if they lost their salvation. Uh, or they lost their faith. All right, can true Christians lose their faith and salvation? Now, that's a big question. I don't have time to unpack that right now, but you might want to write these references down quickly if you're interested in this. John 10, 27 through 30. Romans 8, 28 through 30. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Philippians 1, 6. And a lot of other passages teach that. No, a true Christian with genuine faith cannot lose their salvation. They are eternally secure. 1 John 2.19 is evidence of this and relates to the situation in Ephesus. Listen very closely to what this says. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. Sounds like Ephesus. As R.C. Sproul said, quote, true Christians can have radical and serious falls, but never total and final falls from grace. End of quote. The false teachers likely had counterfeit faith. Professing with their mouth, not penetrating and in their heart. They likely had counterfeit faith. And by making shipwreck of the faith, by their heretical handling of the law and the gospel and their blasphemy and their ungodliness, they essentially invalidated their claim of faith in Christ. Do you understand? One other thing to note, Paul hadn't lost all hope for these false teachers. 
He handed them over to Satan. Why? That they may learn not to blaspheme, which implies that there was hope of perhaps coming repentance and faith and restoration to the church, that they may learn. Maybe they'll turn. Maybe they'll come back. Maybe they'll actually anchor to the true gospel and stop teaching these weird things in the church. Rejecting a good conscience and shipwrecking the faith is a horrifying and painful thing. It's like Paul's shipwreck described in Acts 27 where this ship struck a reef and the bow stuck and the crashing waves splintered the stern of the ship. The ship was destroyed. Rejecting a good conscience and shipwrecking the faith, hear this, destroys lives. It destroys lives. That's why Paul was so adamant about Timothy handling this situation and handling it quickly. People get stuck in life. They get stuck. The lies and plots of Satan come come crashing on their minds, crashing on their hearts, crashing on their lives. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life froth and foam and crash and the ship of faith for some is splintered to pieces because their conscience is seared. Godliness is lost. They head right into open rebellion and sin. They abandon the faith. It is heartbreaking when people shipwreck the faith. Heartbreaking to watch it happen. A report was done. You might know this name by by a prominent atheist, Daniel C. Dennett. He's one of the intellectuals uh, of uh, the atheist philosophers. And Linda Lascola, I don't know her, entitled, the study was entitled, Preachers Who Are Not Believers. And one of the participants named Adam is is a pastor within a conservative denomination. Years back, he began to lose theological confidence and began to think atheists have better arguments than Christians. He made shipwreck of the faith, became an atheist, yet he continues to pastor his church. He actually said this. This is a direct quote. Here's how I'm handling my job on Sunday mornings. I see it as play acting. I see myself as taking on the role of a believer in a worship service and performing. Adam stays in the ministry because he likes the people and he said, quote, I need the job still, end of quote. Now he feels hypocritical about this, but as an atheist, he no longer thinks hypocrisy is wrong. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of the faith. Now, verse 20. It's a tough verse. It's a difficult verse, particularly because of the practical implications it has on church life, on our church life. And I suspect that this verse is new for many of you, maybe most of you. You may never have thought about the meaning of this verse or how this verse might actually play out in in a church. And you've probably... Most of you, maybe all of you, have have not seen this worked out rightly in a church. Uh, So this is tough. Verse 20 may even seem offensive to some of you. You might not like it at all and like how it sounds. Um, Especially if you haven't understood the seriousness of Paul's words in verses 1 through 19. So we really have to draw from the past here. Soundness of doctrine and godliness of lifestyle are so important that something radical is needed to protect those precious things in the church. Something radical. 
Verse 20 deals with church discipline or putting certain people out of the church or removing certain people from the membership of a church in hopes of their repentance, in hopes of their faith, in hopes of their future restoration to the church. And I'd guess the majority of churches in America have no idea what the Bible says about church discipline. Therefore, it's simply not done by the majority of churches. The faithful ones do it, but so many don't even want to touch this with a 10-foot pole. And they're not doing it. And the church suffers as a result of it. So this brings, brings me to the last point, which I want to make tenderly. By God's grace and Christ's strength, we must, number three, protect the purity of the church through church discipline aimed at restoration. Aimed at restoration. If people in a church propagate strange doctrine which detracts from a right understanding of law and gospel, and if they live ungodly lives, what needs to be done? Should anything be done? Or should we just sit here and let it happen? Please listen carefully to Paul, verses 19 and 20. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now that sounds extreme, folks. What does it mean? That's what I'm interested in. What does it mean? Here are a few things to notice. Number one, Paul named names. Paul named names. There were a bunch of false teachers, but he named Hymenaeus and Alexander probably because they were ringleaders. Paul needed to be clear, and he was. This is the problem. Number two, Hymenaeus and Alexander were blaspheming God inside the church. These were church-going men. Don't lose sight of that. Likely elders, professing Christians who were blaspheming God with their strange doctrine and seared consciences. 2 Timothy 2, 16-18 says that Hymenaeus swerved from the truth and said that the resurrection had already happened, which was upsetting the faith of people in the church. Hymenaeus had to be dealt with. Please understand this. It wasn't necessarily that Hymenaeus didn't believe in the resurrection of Christ or even the resurrection of believers per se. It was that he said the resurrection of believers had already happened. Perhaps he only believed in a spiritual resurrection and not a bodily resurrection. So it already happened. And this was messing with people's head and theology inside the church. Now, Alexander may have been mentioned in 2 Timothy 4.14. Not sure if it's the same Alexander. But either way, Alexander was part of the problem inside the church. These men needed to be turned over to Satan. Now, if that seems harsh to you and you're like, oh, I don't like the way that that sits, simply consider this question very carefully. What impact do you think tolerating strange doctrine, blasphemy, and ungodliness in a church has on the people in that church? Answering that question may help you understand why God commands church discipline to be done. Commands it. We must. Number three, Paul handed these men over to Satan. Now, that's a tough phrase, folks. First, understand this, God is certainly absolutely sovereign over everything, everything. 
However, there is a kingdom of Christ and there is a kingdom of Satan. Christ is head and ruler of the church. The church is the realm and reign of Christ. Satan is the head and ruler of the world. The world and its rebellion against God is the realm and reign of Satan. Second, to hand someone over to Satan is to dismiss them from the church or the gracious realm and reign of Christ where God lovingly cares for his people into the world or the realm and reign of Satan where the benefits of the gospel are not enjoyed but souls are destroyed. According to their evident apostasy in this passage, Paul meant to put Hymenaeus and Alexander out of the church of Ephesus to cut them off from God's means of grace, namely the preaching of God's word and the sacraments. Cut them off from the fellowship of the church, fellowship of God's people, and to consider them as part of the realm of Satan, to consider them as unbelievers. Carefully consider that because these guys were professing Christians. Now, do we see this anywhere else in Scripture? Are we just making one little thing and going with it? Absolutely, it's, it's in Scripture. Paul essentially told the Corinthian church, excuse me, uh, uh, the same thing in 1 Corinthians 5.5. 5. <clears throat> you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, he said, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Notice why Paul says to deliver the man to Satan or to cut him off from the church. Why would he do that? The destruction of of the flesh. Now, what does that mean? He hopes this guy dies? No, that's not what he's getting at. The aim of church discipline is to help someone turn from their sin, to put the desires of the flesh to death so that they might be truly saved from their sin and that they might live. There's a glorious purpose of church discipline, life in Christ. 1 Corinthians 5.13 is key as well when Paul instructs the Corinthian church to, quote, purge the evil person from among you. Purge. Matthew 18 is a key text. Jesus explained exactly how church discipline is done. Jesus believed in it. If a brother inside the church sins against you, you go to him and confront him. If he doesn't listen to you, you take someone with him and you confront him again. If he still doesn't listen, you tell it to the church. And if he still doesn't listen, he then becomes, this is very interesting, as a Gentile and as a tax collector. In other words, he is no longer considered a brother but he is considered an unbeliever who needs to be evangelized for the glory of Christ. 2 Thessalonians 3.6 is a key text. Paul wrote this. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from a, any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. A few verses later, Paul added this. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him. That he may be ashamed. Verse 15 is so key. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Warn him as a brother. When professing believers do not repent of their strange doctrine, nor live uh, nor repent of their ungodly lifestyle for the glory of God and for the purity of the church. Local churches need to obey God 
Do the hard thing. Do the right thing. And turn those unrepentant people over to Satan and cast them out of the church. Church discipline is the warning that God has and will continue to use to bring many people to faith. But we have to be faithful to Scripture. He brings people back through, that's, that's what the aim of it is, restoration. Now, I understand there are all kinds of objections to this from professing Christians who simply don't know their Bibles. That's where the rejections come from. And my guess is that one of the main objections is actually a visceral one. Church discipline feels mean. So I don't like it. Okay? That, I think, is the main thing. And, but you need to understand this. Sin is mean. Sin wrecks people. It destroys people's lives. It's not a friend. And if sin goes unchecked, it kills people and it damns them to hell forever. That's not what we want as a church. We want people to have joy and life in Christ. So we have to be ready to do this. So carefully study why Paul turns Hymenaeus and Alexander over to Satan. Look at the end of verse 20. It's very clarifying that they may learn not to blaspheme. Do you understand what Paul is saying here? This is really important. The purpose of church discipline is not to be mean. The purpose is love, 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 love for God, love for others, love. Paul turned them over to Satan so that they would learn a valuable lesson, an eternal lesson. That's discipline. The hard lesson would hopefully lead them to repentance and lead them to faith, true faith, and restoration in the church. Restoration is the goal, not condemnation. Love is the goal, not animosity. And if those false teachers learn not to blaspheme, hallelujah, to the glory of God alone for his grace, their soul would be saved. Who's going to stand up? Who's going to show them their error? Only those who love. You see, to let them revel in their sin without confronting them would be very unloving. Just let them go. Let them, let them head straight to hell with their bad doctrine and ungodliness. And we're okay with that because I certainly don't want to say anything. How unloving. Church discipline must be done in churches that care about people's eternal joy and pleasure in God. William Hendrickson helpfully explained it this way, he is hoping and praying that by means of this dire affliction, these false teachers may come to see themselves as grievous sinners. Remember, they were abusing the law. They were prideful and arrogant. They didn't get how the law attached to them. Are as grievous sinners and may be brought to genuine repentance so that they will no longer rail at the truth and thereby revile its author. The purpose of church discipline is to maintain the honor of God, to restore the sinner, and to purge iniquity from the church. Now, there is so much I need to say on church discipline, and I must leave that to other sermons. Uh, but it is important that you realize that verse 20 and other similar verses exist because God cares a lot about sound doctrine and godliness in his church. He cares a lot about it, those things. And it is up to all of us to protect the purity of our church through church discipline aimed at restoring those who stray. Because we love them. 
We love them so much we're willing to do the hard thing. You see, Timothy had a very tough job to do in Ephesus. Maybe that's why Paul said, wage the good warfare. Because it's not going to be easy, Timothy. Timothy probably was hated. I mean, what if everybody loved Hymenaeus and Alexander? Hey, they're here. Awesome. Come on in, guys. We love these guys. And here, Timothy, this isn't going to end well. I got to talk to these guys. Man, I... That's intimidating. It's warfare. It's hard. It's dangerous, but it is good. God says it's good. So the application is simple for this morning. We must wage the good warfare. We must hold to faith and a good conscience. We must together protect the purity of our church through church discipline to restore those who stray. Our aim must always be love. We're not chucking chairs. You're chucking chairs. You're throwing some punches. You're part of the problem. Now we got to discipline you for chucking the chairs. Can't do that. Love has to be the aim. Love of God and love of others. I'll end with this. If you pass someone floating in the sea whose boat had been smashed to pieces and they were desperately clinging to this little splinter as they bob in the sea, If you were able to help them, would you just cruise on by? Or would you try to help? Would you engage? We must wage the good warfare. We must fight the good fight for the faith. And we must do it lovingly. We must do it compassionately. We must do it winsomely. But we must do it strongly. Father, I give you thanks for your precious word. The words this morning... Some of them are pretty tough, God. And guess what? You know, God, we confess. We don't know what we're doing when it comes to church discipline. So we need to study your word very carefully as a church to put some things in place where we can protect the soundness of our doctrine and the godliness and holiness of our church. Those things are so important to you, God. We love them. We cherish them. And we'll, we need to wage warfare for them because Satan is a wicked, terrible enemy who hates what we're doing at Jerusalem Church. Hates it. Wants to kill all of us and bring us down in gross sin and immorality. Wants us to believe weird things. So God, anchor us to your word. Lead us by your spirit. We need your mercy. We need your grace. We get confused about what to believe. We, we give up. Before we even fight for godliness at all, we give up and we just head right into sin. Forgive us, God. Give us mercy. Give us grace. Give us Christ's strength that we can turn from sin and turn to right thinking and doing and loving and cherishing you, God. Thanks for being so honest with us and help us work church discipline out here as a church. Then we know how to do it with love. Know how to do it with compassion in order to restore those who are swerving from the truth and swerving from a good conscience and their conscience is seared and they don't care about God's word. They'd rather hold on to their thing than let it go and, and, and obey you and your word. Help us to love those people by being firm with them. Not angry, just firm. Because we love them and we want them to experience life and joy and peace and comfort and hope in Jesus So God, I plead with you that you work in our church and help us to be people of your word. All for your glory as the king of the ages. Amen.